we've already heard of John the Baptist, and now we get more of the testimony of John the Baptist. We'll get more of that testimony next week when the first disciples in John are called. But I wonder how many of us, just off the, off the top, just how many of us go through life with a dulled heart? And when I say go through life with a dulled heart, I mean, I mean it, it, it doesn't feel... It, it's kind of like, you just kind of ho-hum or bah-humbug, if you want to say it like that, even though Christmas, you know, the Christmas day is done, we're still in the days of Christmas. But you just feel like you're just kind of going through the motions. <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of going through the motions for a lot of people, for a lot of years. Where you, you just live repetitively. And you go, is this really, is this the life that I, that I want? Is it, you know, you that, that, that kind of existential question, is this all that there is? Is this all that, it, is this all life has? Like, get up, go to work, work, come home, try to get a raise, try to save for retirement, like, you know, care for my family. If I don't have a family, try and get a family. Like, like all those things that we, we try to do. <clears throat> and then there becomes that question, like, is this all there is. Because if you see certain people who live with a kind of passion that you can't necessarily, it doesn't feel like you can grasp it. You ever seen people like that where you just go, why do you live so joyfully? And why do you feel like you have such purpose? And, and, and why is everything, not even that it's all going well for you, but how come you can just handle it? with a totally different spirit, a totally different heart. Like, like, why is that? You ever get a little jelly of those people? Like where they just, you just go, how do you live like that? <clears throat> how, how can, you know, this be happening in your life and everything makes sense? How can you be joyful? How can you smile? How can you do that? Right? And I think, I think, honestly, that kind of person that stands out and up among groups of people, we all know those people. We want to be those people, but really, very often, we're just looking at them and we're going, that person's different. They live differently. <clears throat> they live purposefully. Day in and day out, they seem to know what they're doing. They know what... They have some, maybe it's a call, you know, you kind of go through all these like spiritual terms, like maybe there's just a call that they've responded to. Well, I can just say for you and anybody wondering, like I never have really felt called to ministry. I've just been in it for a dozen years. Uh, but like there was no like call, like you must go, right? Like you just kind of, it, okay, it's the next step. <clears throat> you just go, hey, next step is here. And now we're going to be here, wherever it might be. Like, but you do feel like sometimes people just like, you seem to have an edge that I don't have. And, and we get to see this over the next two weeks, <clears throat> but in particularly this week, we get to see this in John. We get to see this in John. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, not John the Disciple of Jesus. You have to just remember in the day, we're going to talk about this this week and next, but but religious leaders had followers, okay? Like religious leaders had followers, rabbis had 
people that they would teach. There would be schools of thought and schools of like of education in certain rabbis. There'd be <clears throat> more liberal rabbis and more conservative rabbis. And, and you could be from this school or from that school. And so the idea of Jewish men in particular having followers that they would train wasn't uncommon. So John the Baptist was one of those who had followers. Jesus was one who had followers. Jesus next week will be called rabbi, teacher. <clears throat> but what we see in John the Baptist is just a, a confident in sure sense of what God is doing around him and through him that is so salient, like it's just there. And you go, this guy is different. This guy is different. He knows who he is and he knows who he's not. I don't think sometimes we can answer either of those questions. <laughs> like, but he knows who he is, he knows who he's not. And as he is preaching and he's explaining that the Messiah is going to come and he's baptizing them kind of in, in preparation for the Messiah to come into the world, people are starting to wonder who he is. And they begin to pull from <clears throat> Old Testament history to figure out if he's certain people who the Jewish leaders are waiting for. And so they're going to ask him some questions. And what we're going to see is John's humble witness, kind of a denial of himself, which is a pretty important part of John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. That's John's whole ministry is preparing the way for the Messiah so that the Messiah might be known. <clears throat> so John becomes less and less important, even though he gets beheaded, and Jesus' ministry increases. But he's about to be questioned by religious leaders. And in verses 19 through 28, <clears throat> we get those, those questions. Then in verses 29 through 34, we get, he knows what God's doing and he points to it. He says, this guy is the lamb. So we're going to, again, like we have been in, a, in the past few weeks, like this, is a, this, this passage requires us to be comfortable in some Old Testament ideas so that we know why he's being asked what he's being asked. It's not just they go up and they're like, hey, are you Elijah? They're not just picking names. Like, are you the prophet? Like, they're, like, like you know, well, if he's not Elijah, maybe he's just the prophet. We'll just go, are you the prophet? And like, no, not that either. <clears throat> so we're going to have to understand some of what's going on. So we start with these religious leaders being befuddled. That's actually in the outline, befuddled by John the Baptist's identity. They do not know who he is. That's verse 19. Who are you? Who are you? What are you doing? <clears throat> and he starts rather clearly with, I am not the Christ. Now, I think it's Al Mohler who says it this way, like, Jesus' name isn't Jesus Christ, and like, like his last name is Christ. <laughs> like, we might, we, like, sometimes we might think that. Like, we just go, <clears throat> you, yeah, like, it's not Jesus Christ, like, you go to the, like, Mohler's illustration, like, you go to the mailbox, and there's some, like, Christ, comma, J on it, where you go deliver mail to him. Right? Christ is the Messiah. And so, so, so Jesus the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? They asked John the Baptist. And he says, 
No, who are you? I'm not the Messiah. Not him. Uh, okay, well, it, so they have to kind of go through there, you know, like the, 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 where you have to figure out Bart knows logic puzzles. Uh, you have to kind of go through certain little things and go, okay, well, he's like four feet tall, but his name is not Stan, you know, and you have to go through the whole list and you're like, oh, I hate these, right? So now they're going through their list, okay? They marked off not the Messiah. Well, who else are we looking for? And there is, in first century Judaism, a messianic expectation. Even though it's been 400 years, there's still been entertainment testamental writing and people thinking, hey, where's this Messiah going to come from? Where's it going to be in the gospel of Luke? There's Simeon and there's Anna from the tribe of Asher who are still waiting for the Lord to come. And so there is this latent messianic expectation and they know that certain people or things are going to happen as the Messiah comes. Like, okay, so you're not the Messiah. All right. Maybe you're Elijah. <clears throat> now, if you don't know Elijah, Elijah and Elisha are two prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And if you read their ministries, they do seem rather New Testament. And what I mean by that is like, you see, you see Peter and Paul do similar types of ministry where like you're healing folks. And like, it's just, it's just kind of powerful. The spirit of God is present. And, <clears throat> and we even read because Elijah was somebody who didn't die. He is, he's brought into the clouds. There is this statement from Malachi, the prophet Malachi, that Elijah, it's the Lord, but behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament isn't just one day. The day of the Lord is times of God's visitation, which result in judgment at times. Day of the Lord being the coming of the Messiah. The day of the Lord can be the Babylonian captivity. It can be the Assyrian captivity as they prophesy about the day of the Lord or these times where the Lord is going to do something specific. So there's like little D days of the Lord and there's big D day of the Lord when we see the Lord return. Like that's the final one. So there's all these other days of the Lord that the prophets speak of, but then there's also the big day of the Lord. But we know Elijah's going to come before the, the big day of the Lord. You know, like, like before there's Messiah, there's like Messiah's going to be there, but Elijah's going to come. But by the time Malachi's written, Elijah's long gone. And so there's still something happening. What does is, what is John the Baptist say? I'm not him. I'm not Elijah, which is interesting because Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels associates John the Baptist's ministry with the ministry that's like Elijah's. <clears throat> and so, because Jesus will say, well, Elijah's already come, but you didn't recognize him. And then it's like, oh, then they realized at that time he was speaking about John the Baptist. This is how D.A. Carson would put it. Um, that, that John the Baptist will not associate himself with Elijah, right? He won't say, hey, I'm Elijah. Not his, that's not his job. This is how Carson puts it. He goes, here he refuses to make it, it being the connection between him and, and Elijah. A refusal which, when placed beside the synoptic evidence, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels, suggests that he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. Right, that John was not even aware of what John was doing all the time. He was just aware of the lane he was in at the time, 
but he wasn't necessarily aware of all the significance that would be applied to it. But isn't that kind of common for how servants of the Lord operate? Like we step into what God's put before us. He steps into it. I know who I am. I know who I'm not. And so what you actually see in John is like a humble self-denial. I'm not these guys. I'm not all that, right? Like I'm just, I'm, I'm just John doing what has been asked. So they ask him if he's Elijah. He goes, I'm not. <clears throat> Jesus has, sees more significance in John's ministry than even John does. They go, are you the prophet? Well, that's weird. Like, which prophet? Which prophet are you talking about? There are a lot of prophets. Are you the prophet? That actually comes from the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy. I'm sorry. Deuteronomy, the Lord is speaking to Moses <clears throat> and he's talking about what he will do later. Now, Moses, we're talking like 1400s BC, right? Now we're up to the first century. We have in Deuteronomy, this being said, the Lord will, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is saying, the Lord's going to raise up somebody like me. Well, what did Moses do? Moses was the leader in delivering God's people out of their bondage of slavery. The Lord's going to send a prophet like me, and you're going to listen to him. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, lest I die. I will raise up for them, Deuteronomy 18, 18, a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And that sounds rather messianic again. Like it sounds like there's this, there's this expectation. And so we see the Jewish leaders going, what's going on here? Who are you? Yeah, I'm not Elijah. They go, are you the prophet? Because again, they were reading their text and they expected a prophet. So they say, are you this one? Because there's somebody that the Lord's going to send and he's going to speak God's words. And he says, no, I'm not that one either. Well, now they're bothered. I would be too. It's a non-answer. You're not helping me out at all, John. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us because they're trying to figure out what's going on because the religious world is being a little messed with <clears throat> and the guys in power have to know their power is going to be messed with. I mean, it's really like, like, we need to know what's happening here. And he says this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, if you look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that's the quote, it's going to be put a little different than John sees it, right? Like, like Isaiah's quote says, a voice cries, open quote, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. <clears throat> John calls himself the one crying from the wilderness, make straight. The cry is the same. 
Make, make straight, make, like make way for the Lord, make straight the desert a highway. Isaiah was a book, again, of messianic expectations. Isaiah chapter 40 is speaking to what God's going to do in delivering his people out of their exile. And so he's speaking to his people and the Messiah is going to come. And just like right, you're preparing the way, you're rolling out the red carpet. That's what we do, roll out the red carpet. Make straight paths is that same kind of idea. And so you lift up valleys and you drop hills so you have a straight path for the Lord. So Isaiah goes, I'm the one calling out to make a path for the Lord. He's using Isaiah because Isaiah speaks of that redeemer, that savior coming. God's deliverance of his people. And so he's, like we said before, John's the forerunner. He's the forerunner. He's leading out and Jesus is coming after. Even though John will say, he came before me, he was before me, right? Like he's going, he was already before me, he's better than me, but my role here is to proclaim him and he'll come after me chronologically, in the story, but not for all eternity. He's already, already before me. So what do you see in John? You see him being questioned. He goes, I'm not this, I'm not this, I am this. I'm the one who cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. He knows who he isn't. He knows who he is. And he knows who the Lord is. And what he's supposed to be doing in that. And just as a side note for us, the more confident we can be in those things, the more effective our ministry is. Who I am not, I'm not the Lord, I'm not the Savior, I can't save. Who I am, I am His, redeemed by Christ freed by him, sent out to proclaim his excellencies to the world. I can be that person. And so the, the more you know who you're not and the more you know who you are and what God has called you to, the more effective your ministry will be. I don't say bigger. I don't say smaller. I don't know what comes by that. But the more confident you are in who you aren't, and who you are, and what God's called you into, what God's called us into, the better it is. <clears throat> and so often, and I, and I have to, I, I say this too many times, but I'll say it again. We're all making resolutions, or maybe we're not, but if you are, like, you're like, I've lived through 2020, lived through 2021, I'm over resolutions, I'm over guessing, I'm over trying. Like, we'll just, we'll just, just get my resolutions to try and survive this year. That's fine. But what I would say is, so often we spend time trying to figure out things that God has not revealed. Like, what are we going to do in four days? When's he going to save so-and-so? <clears throat> What's the perfect job that he has for me? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anybody who knows. I don't know, like maybe somebody's like, I'm in the perfect job God has for me. But, but very often it's like, I'm in the job that pays. 
Like, that's the job I'm in. It pays me money. I can have a life. I can be generous. I can meet needs of my family. Like, that's what I'm in it for. So very often we want to know like these super specific things about our life because I, I, I think it's our love for like secret things. Like it's our love for like these little things of life where it's like, I want to know secret things. But like all they were asking of John were things that were revealed things. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He goes, no, I'm actually the one who's calling out. So that role's been taken. We can't be that guy. But we can be ambassadors for Christ because we are. We, we can be those who preach and proclaim. And so, so we spend so much time trying to figure out the things God has not made clear that we actually neglect the things that God has made clear. And we just kind of wander around going, well, I, I just, I want to know what he has for this. I want to know how long my, my, I'm going to live and I want to know, like, that's what psychics are for. And they're quacks. Like, you don't want to do that. And so, so like, we, we don't want, to, like, don't go finding the things that haven't been revealed when you can root yourself in what has. And as you root yourself in what has and you live that out, you are able to understand what God has for you day to day. You don't have to go beyond that. That seems to be the model John was using. He knows the word. He knows who he's not. He knows who he is. And he's happy to answer for that. And so I just go, maybe we could learn something from understanding something about purpose there. The more confident we are in who we are, who we are, what God has revealed, the better we can be off. The better off we can be. So then we see further in 29 through 34, John knowing more of who God is. Now, the chronology gets a little confusing here. It seems as if perhaps John has already baptized Jesus as we get to 29 through 34. And we, we, this, this specific part. It seems like perhaps the baptism has already happened so it's not like John the Baptist the idea would be it's not like John the Baptist had one interaction with Jesus and that was it baptized him game over because he speaks about how this is the one I saw this happen to and so he's speaking presently in, in the narrative about something that's happened previously and very often it's the previously things that the other gospel writers talk about John doesn't actually talk John the apostle doesn't talk about the baptism of Jesus He just has John the Baptist referring back to it. So let's look at this passage, 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So what you get here is John's testimony about something that has previously happened and now he's speaking about it with more clarity in the moment. He sees Jesus coming up and he makes this declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, it doesn't take long being kind of in church life to know that lambs are important they seem important you know like or being a sheep that seems important but the entire sacrificial system used animals and the Passover in the book of Exodus was requiring a lamb And so we have some instructions by God. Let me read them to you. I'm going to read you two passages. First one's in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Why would John call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? It's because historically, in the sacrificial system, lambs were an animal sacrifice so that sins might be temporarily forgiven, right? Like it was a payment for sin, but it was not an ongoing payment. It kind of lasted for a year on the day of atonement. So Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. He's going to deliver his people. It shall be the first month of the year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, you shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to each that they can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You must take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Verse 12 of chapter 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you see the link. In the Old Testament, Moses is gonna lead the people out, but God had said they must slaughter a lamb without blemish and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and at midnight I will pass over the land of Egypt and every household that has blood I will pass over and every household that doesn't the firstborn will die. Isaiah 53 says this about the suffering servant prophesying about the one who will come. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Whether John was thinking Exodus 12 or Isaiah 53 or the general idea that lambs are sacrificed for sin, the connection that he makes between the lamb, little L, and the lamb, big L, is clear. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin. Now think about this. This was early on in Jesus' ministry. It was early on. We're kind of ground level. Jesus hadn't even gotten all his disciples yet. And what do we have but a proclamation about who he is, the one who takes sins away. And it will take seeing his entire ministry and seeing him rejected and seeing him killed and seeing him buried and seeing him rise and seeing him ascend. And even then, some will not believe. But as we already read in the prologue, for all who do believe, he gives the right to become children of God. Remember, know who you're not, know who you are, know who God is. John knows who God is. And he knows what God's doing. And he will speak about that. He'll point and say, Tim, He's the Lamb of God. That we are, we are nothing in comparison to Jesus. That's why John says, he who comes after me was actually before me because he was before me, preexistent, as the prologue of John says. And so he knows I'm not worthy of this man. In humility, he recognizes that he is not the Savior. And he's not even due the attention of the Savior. Which, think about this. He knows he's the one crying out, make way for the Lord, Isaiah 40. And yet he thinks nothing of himself. And yet he thinks nothing of himself. I'm not worthy of this man. He is superior and supreme. (laughs) But like, after we like pop off a few good weeks of Bible reading, we're kind of like, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of all right. Like, I think God likes me a little more. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. I got a little more Bible swag to me. Like we have this thing where after we, we like, we check off the box for a while, we go, I'm killing it. I'm killing this Jesus thing. I've been to church like two weeks straight. It is awesome. (laughs) John the Baptist was prophesied about in Isaiah and he thinks nothing of himself. He knows what he's to do and yet he still looks at Jesus and goes, I'm not worthy of this man. Though he has disciples, though he has followers, people who actually listen to what he's trying to say. 
And he loses some of those followers to Jesus. We'll see that next week. Even though he's that kind of person and he's seen as a teacher and he's seen as a leader and people are interested in his message and Jewish leaders are a little spooked by his message and so they want to come check him out, sniff around and see what's going on. Though that's going on, he still goes, I'm not the Messiah. I'm somebody crying out and I'm not even worthy of the one I'm crying out for. I'm not. <clears throat> and the witness bearing that you see in 32, in 33, in 34 <clears throat> seems to be John looking back and talking about the baptism of Jesus and why Jesus was so important. He says, I saw the spirit descend on him like a dove and it remains. The one who sent me to baptize said to me, the one on whom the spirit remains, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which is setting us up for more of what is to come in the gospel of John. Like John is, John is leaving breadcrumbs early as to where all of this is headed. You get more pneumatology in John than you might expect. He speaks to the Spirit regularly. So the one, when the Father spoke and said, look for the one on whom the Spirit rests. He's the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Well, you look at the Gospel of Luke, for example. Chapter three, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice called down from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that's what you get in Jesus. So John is looking going, he's the one. Not only am I just, don't even take my word for it. God told me it's the one the spirit stays on. And he's the one the spirit stayed on. He's the one. The Son of God. Now, the Son of God is going to have some significance throughout the Gospels. It's a rather frustrating term for some leaders because when Jesus is saying he is the Son of God or people are recognizing him as the Son of God, they recognize that makes you equal to God. Now, we might think like with children, with parents, no, 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 no. Your children are inferior to you. You're in charge. But that's not what is being meant by son of God, right? Like humans make humans, right? Son of a human's a human. If you're calling yourself the son of God, you're calling yourself God. You're not calling yourself inferior God. You're not calling yourself less than God. So he spoke about, and C.S. Lewis and Narnia calls them sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. Recognizing, recognizing their lineage, the lineage of Jesus is God. <laughs> lineage of me is man. And the son becomes man so that we could live. So I want to have you dwell on this one idea today. 
Behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. Look at the lamb. And I mean this in two ways because we all kind of go through the doldrums of life. We all feel sometimes like we're just going through the motions, living it out. And I say it like this. Thing number one, the more you look at Jesus, the less you look at yourself. The more you look at Jesus, the less you look at yourself, the less concerned you are about yourself. The less interested you are in you and the more interested you are in him. So I would say that, look at Jesus. And I would also say this, the more you consider Jesus, the more your affections change. That is not, hear me out, that is not always instantaneous. Where like upon conversion, the Lord just removes all of these affections. And he's like, well, these are all done now. And here's all your new ones. And you just get to like, you know, like presents on Christmas morning, you just get to open them and play with them. Right? We still deal with sin. We still deal with flesh. We still deal with temptation. All that's going on. But one thing is true. The more you behold the lamb, the more you look at Jesus, the more you consider Jesus, the more you pray to the Lord, the more you think about him and meditate upon him and speak about him, the more passionate you get for him. The more you see your heart change, Behold the lamb. Don't behold yourself. Don't behold your problems. Don't look at them. Don't dwell upon them. Don't let them distract you from a savior who loves you and gave himself for you. But look through your problems at your savior and go to your savior with your problems and ask him to shape your understanding of them clarify what you're going through them for giving you endurance don't be so focused on your sins that you forget that your sins are forgiven behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world Everybody in this room, everybody online who is in Christ is fully and freely forgiven. They stand redeemed amongst an army of others for whom the same has happened. And when you behold the Lamb, you don't sit there and dwell on your sin. But you, you, you get to think of your forgiveness and the love that God showed you in sending a son into this world so that you might have life. If you have children, your children are not a hindrance to your growth as much as you might think. They help you understand the heart of God. And if you can give your attention to showing Jesus to your children saying, this is who he is. This is how he is good. This is how he forgives. 
what starts to happen is you, you do, you, you live with more confidence, not because you're more confident in yourself, but because you're more confident in who God is and what God's working out. But, but honestly, very often we just don't make it a habit to behold our God, to think of him, to read about him, to discuss him, it just doesn't become a part of us. It's like we're just sitting around just going, God, change me. I'm gonna live my life over here and give all my attention to all this stuff over here and, and I'm gonna live here and, and then I'm just gonna wonder why I'm so miserable all the time. And I go, perhaps, perhaps when you see John the Baptist's laser focus on who he isn't, based on what God has revealed, on who he is, based on what God has revealed, and on who Jesus is, based upon what God has revealed. Maybe that's where our attention should be. The more attention we give to our God, the less concerned we become about our lives. We live with more passion, more direction, and more attention because we see more and more what he has done for us. Behold the lamb who takes away our sin. For anybody who has not held on to that message, has not believed that message, it is free and for you to trust Christ for your salvation, to have life in him. What does it take? Faith and his grace to you. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God saves. Do we believe Jesus is who he is? Sometimes I say, believe Jesus is who he says he is. But do you just believe Jesus is who he is? Read it. You could LeVar Burton. You don't have to take my word for it. Like, you can just read it. Take God's word for it. Believe, rejoice, behold your Savior. He is good.